what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I thought that a pallbearer, the name changed depending on who passed away. So had I passed, it would have been a Greg Bearer. You know, had my friend Mark passed, it would have been a Mark Bearer. And someone was like, no, that's not actually how that works out. (laughs) And being like, oh, okay, thanks. I'm Alex McKinnon, and this is Sorry About the Kid. Chapter 2. Pallbearers. Two or three days after my brother died, there was a wake at an old greystone funeral home a few blocks from my house. I remember spending hours there, sitting beside my parents in the dark, wood-paneled room, feeling small in my chair. A constant stream of people coming and going. At one point they cleared the room, and the casket was opened for me and my family. I walked up to it with my dad and saw Paul lying there. I remember putting my hand on his arm and feeling bubble wrap under his suit jacket. After all his injuries, it was helping his body hold its shape. It looked like Paul, but in a way it didn't look like Paul. There's something gone. I remember my dad looking at him with such a deep sadness then sweeping Paul's hair away from his closed eyes. After he turned away, I leaned in to fix it back to the way Paul would have wanted it. A little messier, a little cooler. My finger brushed against the makeup on his forehead. I looked at the flesh-colored mark on my skin and raised it to my nose. The mix of foundation and formaldehyde made my head spin. When we arrived at the funeral the next day, at a church just down the street from where Paul was killed, it was already packed. People were spilling out onto the steps, and TV news crews were filming it all. There were nearly a thousand people there, many of them teenagers, dressed in their school uniforms from all the schools nearby. They lined the walls of the main floor and filled the seats in the gallery. My sister Sarah gave a eulogy. I think he'd just be staring here open mouth, saying, oh my God, he's so popular. <laughs> Towards the end, Paul's old boombox was set up at the front of the church to play his favorite song. I remember it very clearly. The song Stairway to Heaven played. That's pretty much when everybody burst out 
crying even more than before. Paul's childhood girlfriend, Zoe, was sitting in the balcony. And at the same time the song was playing, for some reason we looked down and saw that there were rows and rows of police officers, and uh, we were all pretty freaking angry. My dad had actually invited the cops from Station 15 to come see what they'd done. And a bunch had shown up. But not the officer who'd been driving the car. I was one of the pallbearers. So at the end of the funeral, I stood beside Paul's casket next to Greg, Paul's friend who had witnessed the accident. Yeah, I remember being a pallbearer and walking Paul out of the church and I will uh, I will also never forget the look of your mom and the pain in your father's face and when I think back to the people who were standing around Paul's grave. And you had people crying silently. You had people crying openly. It was the look of pain on your mom's face that I will never forget. It was a lot for a 14 year old process, man. I'm sorry this happened to you, man. Alex, I'm sorry it happened to you, man. It's kind of jarring to listen back to this conversation as we're putting this episode together. I'm comforting Greg as if this didn't happen to me, too. As if it happened to somebody else. I think it's the most natural thing in the world that a little 10-year-old would stop all that feeling because it was just too painful. And you wouldn't know at that age how to let it out. Right. And uh, somehow it got stuck a little bit there. I've started seeing a therapist to talk about Paul. Because it almost gets frozen. Like it's, you know, shock is like ice. It freezes. All that sadness and that... Anger is kept in a box. She's a retired grief counselor named Devon, and she has her own connection to my brother. I mean, I never go past that area without thinking about it. Never. She was sitting in her car, waiting at the red light at the crosswalk, when Paul was killed. She saw his books flying through the air. Soon after, she began working with families who'd lost a child, and she always wondered how my parents and sister and I were coping feeling somehow bonded with us. But I'd never spoken with her about any of the stuff until now. When I was in the grief center, I had the grief center, we had this huge punching bag. And particularly for boys and young men that came to see us, we'd make them put on the gloves and punch the hell out of this punching bag. And if ever you had the chance to do that, you imagine that that punching bag is that police officer. You would punch and punch and punch and then you'd probably fall down in a heap and you'd cry your eyes out. You know, I'm thinking about that and I I don't think I would put the police officer's face on that bag. 
I mean, I am angry at him. I, I, th- I think, I, th- I think what he did was awful. But I don't know what would be on that back. But that's would be interesting to ask yourself, Alex. You know, that would be interesting, and you might have to think about it. What would be on that bag? I think what I'm angry at most is what they did to my parents and how sad they were. Yeah. My sister has talked to me about how she would come home and um, and just see my mom with puffy red eyes staring out the window. Yeah. Because I think in some ways uh, it took your mom and dad away too. You know what I mean? You lose the way they were. They're never the same. There is no way that a person is the same after they lose a child. You cannot be the same. You're not the same. And, and so it took something away from you and from your mum and dad, the people they were. In the first few days and weeks, it felt like all life had been sucked out of the house. We'd lost Paul, but my mom seemed somehow dead too. Catatonic. She never smiled and barely slept. I did not want to forget. I didn't think I'd be able to take the shock again. If I ever forgot for a moment, if I ever fell asleep and and forgot. So I woke up every morning and said, Paul's dead. It was all very, it seemed very unreal. It seemed impossible. Nothing really made a lot of sense. I couldn't watch a television program. I would not even know what they were saying. a hard year in some ways to be your mother's friend. My mom's friend, Joan, was around a lot those days. Like, people grieve in very, very different ways. You know, other people might put on a strong face, carry on, pull up your socks, move forward, but your mom was not like that. Your mother, to her credit, grieved openly. I would go with her to her bank and she would cry with the tellers. I would go with her to Atwater Market and she would cry with the meat man and the fruit guys. My sister and I started pulling away from my mom a bit, not wanting to be home as much because home was so sad. I was grieving that Paul wouldn't have a life, that he wouldn't live his life. I returned to school just a few days after Paul's funeral. I remember the strangest feeling of being in the schoolyard and sensing a change. Kids were looking at me. Girls I thought were cute would come up to me and tell me they'd seen me on the news the night before. There was this newfound celebrity, and it was confusing. My oldest friend Emily remembers me trying to act normal, thanking her for smiling when no one else was. 
but also talking about Paul in weird ways. Like one time when we were hanging out with our friend Nick after the funeral. And you said something to Nick like, oh, Nick, you should thank Paul because you got to miss school. Hmm. You, didn't, you didn't have to go to school today, you know? And I remember feeling uncom- like uncomfortable, I guess. I, I, rem- I, I kind of remember just feeling quite lost in how to be, knowing that I was so sad and that I was scared, but I didn't know how to act. Paul's friends found their own ways of coping. Paul was my first friend who died. And I remember for all of us who knew him, we were kind of floating. Mm. You know, I know now that it's called like the fog of grief. But, you know, when you're a teenager, you just don't understand what's going on. And I remember actually the people at our school were really quite good because they just let us float around. And they knew that there was this big group of kids hurting and that they just needed some time and space. And I remember that there was one person, I think it was Susie, her method of dealing with it was just like, nope, it's not true. And so she came up with this alternative explanation that Paul had been recruited to play um, rugby for South Africa, and that (laughs) is where he had gone. And, you know, on the one hand, we're all like, what? Like giving her the teenage stink eye. But on the other hand, we're all like, yeah, yeah, we like that. That's much better. Like, you know, (laughs) Paul would like that. And it was comforting to have this alternate explanation, you know? Yeah. And, um... Even as a kid, you know, after Paul died, I noticed how your parents, like, aged 10, 15 years overnight. One night, just a day or two after Paul died, I walked by his room and saw my dad staring at an old map of the world that was hanging on my brother's wall. I watched from the doorway as he looked it over for a minute or two, almost like he was questioning its accuracy. Then he buried his head in his hands and began to weep. I'd never seen him cry before. Not really knowing what to do, I crept over and wrapped my arms around his waist. He was startled and tried to tell me he was all right, but he couldn't. He couldn't stop crying. He just held me tight and cried for what seemed like forever. I'd later learned that he had just come back from the crosswalk in front of my brother's school. He'd been on his hands and knees in the street, using a tape measure to calculate the distance between a large bloodstain on the ground and the skid marks left by the cop car that killed Paul. What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover. 
the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So where, where did he land, land exactly? Right here, at this sign. After he hit Paul, then he slammed his brakes on, and he couldn't stop till he was at that light. At first, the details of how the accident happened were still hazy. My parents heard a police spokesperson on the radio say that Paul had run out into the street, and that the cop had the green light, and that he wasn't driving that fast. But my dad's an engineer by trade, and he wasn't buying it. The skid marks were, were right where he hit Paul. They didn't start before that. He didn't even put the brakes on. And they were fairly short. And then there were more down the road. He couldn't stop for something like 500 meters. And I mean, all this just all, all corroborated the fact that he was, he, was, he was over 100 kilometers an hour in a school zone. I mean, it's incredible he didn't kill more. And it wasn't just a school zone. Just down the road was the Montreal Association for the Blind. Exactly how fast the car was going would become a huge area of contention. Because Paul's trajectory through the air had been stopped by the parked car he landed under, it was impossible to determine the exact speed at which he was hit. But the medical team that had treated him said it looked like he'd been in a highway accident. And people from the neighborhood started randomly coming to the house, telling my parents what they'd seen. People would describe it like a a bomb going down the street, or it was so noisy, apparently. We just began to feel that this could have been prevented. It would take a while before we learned where the cop car had been going in such a hurry. A call came in to police station 15 about a potentially violent man at a sketchy motel. An emergency vehicle on site was requesting assistance. Two rookie policemen were paired together that day. Paul-André Gandon, with just three months on the job, and Serge Markovic, with 10. A few minutes after the call came in, Markovic got behind the wheel. He was somewhat familiar with the area, but his partner in the passenger seat was not. Markvik flipped a switch, then made it so the siren would only sound if he honked his horn. He turned on the flashing lights, and they set off. Less than three minutes later, their car slammed into Paul, and sent him flying a hundred feet through the air. The violent man they'd been heading to help get under control turned out to be holed up in his motel room with a knife. He'd been threatening to hurt himself, but in the end was just sobbing on the floor next to his bed, clutching a blanket. It was a tragic event in a city that has had many similar tragedies. Paul's parents say they often see police cars speeding with no siren on in this area. You'd have better luck shooting a cannon through than trying to put that car through there. Police officers have responded in the newspaper and said it's every policeman's nightmare. 
I think that their nightmare can be stopped. They can act more intelligently and more appropriately, but our nightmare is endless. It won't stop. In some ways, that nightmare felt like a collective one. My dad says the whole neighborhood was in a state of grief. It was shocking for everybody. It's like everybody got hit by that car. Earlier that year, a sex worker had been killed by a cop car and had been simply identified as transvestite in the police report without garnering much attention. My parents wanted to make sure that wouldn't be the case for Paul and him being a white middle-class kid from a mostly white neighborhood certainly didn't hurt. His story ended up being featured regularly on the news. A lieutenant from Station 15 was quoted in the newspaper saying, If we drove 10 miles an hour to get to an emergency call, we'd get complaints. We've saved a hell of a lot of people by getting there quickly. He said, The accident was unfortunate, but it shouldn't serve to further regulate policing. My parents disagreed. They discovered that the year Paul died, Montreal police cars were involved in 753 accidents, injuring over 100 people. Along with some friends, they formed a group called HEAT, Help End Avoidable Tragedy, and started circulating a petition to force police officers to slow down. Our neighbor, Jack, took up a leadership role in the group, alongside my parents. You know, so often, you know, the whole theme is, well, you have to turn the page. But everybody felt that we won't do that. We're not going to turn the page. So we found ourselves as a group of people angrily marching to put our foot down. Some 300 people gathered outside Station 15 in NDG. Many are members of HEAT. The group presented Station 15's director with a plaque remembering the McKinnon boy. On it, the words, lest we forget. Together, remembering what has happened. The police director spent about two minutes outside and refused to answer reporters' questions, saying only a few words to the family. I want to assure you that uh, policing methods are being revised at all times in order to make it more secure. The group then marched to the site of the accident. The family laid flowers. They cried, never to be forgotten in loving memory. And Shatila, Pulse News. I remember that day of the march, standing next to my dad in front of the TV cameras as he presented the police chief with the plaque honoring Paul. I remember the roses we laid where Paul was hit and how a university student passing by picked one up thinking, wow, my lucky day, free flowers, not knowing what they were for. Someone ran after her to tell her and she looked mortified. My mom says the next day, the station chief returned the plaque to her and my dad saying the officers found it too upsetting. My parents took out a newspaper ad encouraging more witnesses to come forward. They were hoping that an upcoming coroner's inquest would bring everything to light and make it clear whether the officer driving the car should be criminally charged. I remember feeling like I was starring in my very own detective movie. I'd wake up every morning, curious to see if we'd be on the front page of the newspaper that day. And then at dinner, I'd eavesdrop on my parents' conversations about lawyers and evidence. 
I was very unaware of. I was just. I just had certain things that you have to keep saying. You have two more children. You have to look after your children. And so I would ask other people, "How do you find Alex and Sarah? Do you? How do you think they are?" Because I felt so far away. I felt. I felt like I was in another world. You know, it was hard for your mother. Really, really hard. I remember telling her that you need a lot more attention. My uncle Anthony came to stay with us for a while. And he remembers my mom being in a constant state of worry. I think that your mother just thought, like, everything, the worst of everything. I mean, that anything bad, anything else could happen, you know. Anything could happen. Just your dad would, wasn't going to come home. Yeah, she was a mess. Your mom got mad at your dad because he wanted to kill the policeman. Did my dad actually say that at any point? To kill him? Yeah. Well, yeah, many times. Uh, a few times. I remember that the police said to me, we're not going to hang Markovic out to dry, you know. And I said, it's not Markovic. It's the whole system. It's the way you educate your police officers. It's the way you teach them to travel the road. It's the power you give them. All of you are under scrutiny. And Dad was, Dad, like, really, really hated Markovic. It was very focused anger. And it used to make me very upset when he would talk violently about Markovic because I felt it was so contrary to what Paul would have wanted us to be, these angry people. I felt that it was a betrayal of Paul to just be filled with anger, and that really upset me, Dad's anger. It's so odd, because he's just such a mild-mannered person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even before I picked up on that anger in the house, I remember worrying my parents were going to get a divorce. It was one of the first things that went through my head after Paul died. A few weeks later, I got into the only fight I've ever been in in my life. A kid named Christian and I started arguing over a basketball game one lunch break. On our way back to class, he told me he was glad my brother died. I punched him in the face, right in front of the teacher. She took me to the principal's office. I was so angry. The school secretary talked to me as I waited outside the office. I remember her welling up when she told me that her brother had died too, and she was my age. When the principal finally came out and saw the two of us there crying, she just told me not to hit anyone anymore. I remember wishing I'd punched Christian harder. It was very difficult for you when you went back to school, I think, because you felt very guilty. Uh, You'd come home and you'd say, uh, it's so weird because everybody's being really, really nice to me. Like, they're really, really being nice to me. 
Mm-hmm. The teachers were being, letting you get away with stuff, and you really hated it that it was just because Paul died. And it's funny because I remember not hating it. I remember being aware of that, but kind of reveling in that a little bit. Well, maybe you did enjoy it, and that was part of your feeling guilty about it. I yeah. mean, maybe I think that is what you found that you enjoyed it, but you hate it. Why? And before that, before uh, Paul died, Dad used to still be reading a book with you at night, but you didn't want that after Paul died. Really? Yeah. I think you want it to be older, and I think it was kind of a way of wanting to be growing up and not have to live through what we were all living through. When the coroner's inquest finally began, my family and I would spend our days hearing witness after witness say that the car had come out of nowhere, that Paul had never stood a chance. At night, I would go to bed trying to program myself to dream about Paul. I couldn't even remember his voice anymore. He was already slipping away. My memories of him, lost in a fog. Can I share another memory, actually? Yeah, please. This is my friend Emily again. I just I have another memory of sleeping over at your house relatively soon after. And it would have been after we had gone to bed at some point, but I was still awake. And you went into Paul's room, and I heard you kind of calling for him, like, in a, in a loud whisper, kind of like, Paul, Paul. Almost like you were trying to communicate with him. And then, wow. like, you sing, Paul, Paul. And then a few seconds passed, and then you ran into your parents' room. And one of them got up, I think probably your dad, and went outside and went for a walk with you. That's crazy. I don't remember that at all. That's that's intense. Yeah. It's a weird feeling, hearing about moments of my life that I have no recollection of. My sister tells me that I slept on the floor of her bedroom for months, but I don't remember that at all. One thing I do remember is playing ping pong in the basement. My parents had bought the table shortly before Paul died. But I only remember playing on it alone, after he died. Folding the table in half towards the ceiling, and whacking the ball against it, as hard as I could. The basement is also where we had stashed the cardboard box full of Paul's bloody clothes. I knew it was there, but did my best not to think about it. Until one day, when I smelt that visceral scent of formaldehyde that had made my head spin at Paul's wake when I had touched his face. I told Yvonne about it during one of our sessions. I was playing ping pong in the basement. The ball went to where that I knew that box was. Mm -hmm. The smell of of rot, it just, it seared into my my nostrils and, and I was scared to go to it. And I just remember running and grabbing the ball and running away. 
You see that emotion that came up there? I could hear that emotion coming up in you, you know? Tell me what they are. Sadness. Sadness. Sadness, yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of fear and a lot of a lot of sadness and fear. Don't be don't be afraid of it. It's uh it's they're very honest emotions and they've just been down there for a long time and you just bringing them up. And as you bring them up, you're slowly sorting them out a little bit, you know? Now, you feel like crying, just allow yourself to. Mm. Let it out. Like, I mean, that's how we get rid of it. You know, we get, get past it, you know, because you're feeling sad. Yeah. You see, Alex, there's part of you that... Um, You've made a big story in your mind about Paul's death. You know what I mean? Your imagination thinks about Paul dead on the ground. But what we want to do is to remind you of other experiences you had with your brother. You know, you sort of have to walk backwards. Yeah. You're on a journey now, I can tell. You're on a journey to uh, find your brother. You know, to find Paul, you're going back through it, the journey of grief. Yeah. But it is not an easy journey. Like, it's got twists and turns and potholes and boulders. And The more you get through it, the more you're going to remember, I promise you. And you'll find your lost brother, if you know what I mean. on the next episode of Sorry About the Kid. Today, the rookie policeman who was at the wheel testified he hadn't noticed the light, and he said he'll drive the same way in the future. He basically wanted us to be thrown out of court as completely crazy, hysterical people who were looking for vengeance. I think I focused a lot on presenting and performing. Like, nobody's going to see how bad this hurts. Nobody's going to see how affected I am. I want you to close your eyes for a moment, take a deep breath. <laughs> I don't know why I'm crying right now. Well, it's very important to you, Alex. It's an important memory. Sorry About the Kid is written and produced by me, Alex McKinnon, and Mira Burt-Wintonic. Editing and sound design by Mira Burt-Wintonic. Jeff Turner is our senior producer. Our theme music is by David Drury. S.K. Robert is our coordinating producer. Our associate producer is Caitlin Taylor. Our logo is by Mathilde Corbet. R.F. Nurani is executive producer. Follow Story About the Kid on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, tell your friends about it. It would mean a lot to us. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.